Okay, well, let's get into the Bible study for this morning. We're continuing our move through the book of Colossians, and today we'll be in chapter 2. And uh, Ernie, just if you could, uh, there's just a little bit of a, a feedback, I think. Uh, yeah, we're going to be between verses 11 and 23 this morning. And this is the second part of last week's. So if you'll recall, last week, uh, the title of the message was Burden for Youth. And so this is the second part of that. And when we began last week, um, we were kind of commiserating with Paul uh, because he was feeling concerned for the Colossian believers. He expressed deep concern for the believers there because they were being exposed to this avalanche of heresy, false teaching that was coming into the church. And because these individuals were relatively new believers, and so they had tender hearts and tender minds, um, they were ripe for being deceived by workers of heresy, some of whom became known later as the Gnostics. And they, they besieged that area that Paul had ministered to in Asia Minor and in Europe during uh, the end of the first century into the second century. And as I mentioned last week, I drew a line between what Paul was concerned about and what we are concerned about in our present day, because we have a burden for our youth, don't we? We have deep concerns that our youth, uh, who are also tender in heart and mind, and perhaps, well, not perhaps, they're mostly new believers, right? And, uh, and so they are also besieged by an avalanche of false teaching, false philosophies, worldly influences, secularism and religious cults that come at them 100 miles an hour because we have the internet and the Colossians didn't. <laughs> and so we want them, of course, to be unified in the faith. We want them to be unified with other believers. We want them to mature in their faith, in the truth of the faith. And we want... Uh, we want to be able to fortify them. And this is what Paul was trying to do. He was doing two things last week. He was giving a warning. Hey, watch out. This stuff is coming at you. And then he was giving encouragement and teaching. And he was directing them to the most important things that we have as any believer, mature or immature alike. We have the spirit of God who dwells in us. We have the word of God, which the spirit has been so faithful to first codify through anointed men who wrote it down. And then through many men and women who brought it through the ages so that we hold in our laps the very same thing that they were looking at in their time. And so this morning, we're going to continue in this, this conversation, if you will. And we're going to look at three particular deceptions that Paul is warning them about. And I would submit to you that these same three influences, maybe in slightly different forms, are very much prevalent today and can capture the hearts and minds of our young people. Uh, the three are this, legalism, which we've heard of many times in the church, and, and, and it has been with the church since the earliest days. Secondly is mysticism, and we're going to talk about what that's all about. And then asceticism, which has many different forms and has come into the general culture that we live in through a lot of the Eastern religious influences. But first, we're going to look at Paul's encouragement and reminder of who we are in Christ. This is always the best place to start with young people who are dabbling with heresy, who are dabbling with uh, different ideas that are not scriptural. It's that we must remind them, we must remind ourselves 
who we are in Jesus Christ. And so if you would stand with me, please. For right now, we're just going to read the verses 11 through 15. And then later in the Bible study, we'll pick up the rest of the chapter. Now, I just want to uh, point out that last week we stopped at verse 13 of this chapter. I'm going to backtrack a couple of verses because it really uh, goes with the rest of this story this morning. And so picking up in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Colossians, here's what we read. In him, that is in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Father, we stand here today as victorious believers in Jesus Christ, Lord. The war has been won, yet many battles lay ahead of us. And, and one of the most fertile battlegrounds, Lord, is the battleground of heresy, battleground of deception. And so, Lord, as we gather here this morning, we pray, Father, for truth. We pray that the Spirit of God working in the midst of the Word of God would impress upon us the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ and the comfort of knowing we need add nothing else to him. He is preeminent and all-sufficient. And so, Lord, we, we, we come before you this morning with open hearts and open ears to receive what the Spirit would speak to us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we already saw last time in verses 9 and 10 that Christ is all that God is and we are complete in him. He's the head of the body of which we are part. We need nothing else to approach him. And this is always what all these different heresies are about, is layering on stuff that you need to do in order to approach God, to be received by God, to be acceptable before God. And, and Paul is keen on, on informing these believers of just who they are in Christ. Because in knowing who we are in Christ, that is the antithesis of embracing additional practices and rituals as a means of getting closer to God, as a means of proving ourselves worthy of God. You know, he uses some, some language. That, Paul is a very, very clever writer, and he is an expert at constructing an argument. We talk about this a lot on our Tuesday night men's Bible studies. When I speak of argument, I don't mean, you know, like a violent shouting match or, or you know, a violent disagreement. I mean constructing a, a, a series of premises that lead to a conclusion that you can re readily receive because of the way he builds it up. One of the heresies that was being foisted upon the Colossians and also the other churches in that area was that in addition to the, putting their faith into Jesus Christ, they had to observe and obey various aspects of the Jewish law. We, we saw this in the, in the context of, uh, I think, the Galatian letter where Paul was dispelling this notion that you need to add to the sufficiency of Christ 
the works of the law. And of course, the signature ritual or work that the Mosaic law prescribed was circumcision, right? It was literally a surgical procedure on a man that was supposed to indicate that he was Jewish and that the Jewish people were set apart from all other peoples. Now, the thing with the circumcision ritual is that it was never intended as a mere physical sign, like getting a tattoo. You got a tattoo on you, and therefore, uh, you're cool. You've got maybe the unit that you served in the military, or you've got the Hells Angels on there. You've got some motorcycle club on there. It wasn't just an outward sign. It was always intended as an outward sign of an inward change of heart. Well, Paul, knowing that they had... They had been influenced by people telling them, no, 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 you have to have this physical alteration to your body if you really want to get close to the Lord. So he uses, he takes that very imagery of circumcision and he uses it in a symbolic way, but the irony is he uses it in the symbolic way that it was initially and originally intended. That is to say, he says there in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised, but notice how he qualifies it, with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins in the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's saying, look, you don't need to do the physical stuff. You have the circumcision made without hands. What might that be? It's the change of heart. What Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians where he said that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things uh, become new. Old things have passed away. And so he's saying that you you don't need to listen to that stuff about the outward uh, alteration of a body in order to prove yourself worthy of God. You have the circumcision made without hands that is the change of heart. This is not a new concept, by the way. The prophets spoke about it that very same way. Jeremiah 4.4, a perfect example. Jeremiah urged his people in Judah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury, God's fury, come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. See, there were plenty of men in Jeremiah's time who had had their bodies altered in circumcision, but their hearts were far from God. And Jeremiah's urging them. He says, look, circumcise yourselves. Take away the foreskin of your heart, the covering, the, the, the crusting over of your heart so that you might enjoy what God is trying to do there. And that was the way in which Jeremiah was seeing it. Paul would write in Romans 2, verses 28 and 9. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Now, please let me just distinguish there's a lot of different layers to being Jewish. Jewish was, was an ethnicity, wasn't it? It was a people. And it was a special people called out by God. Then there was the, the traditions and, and, and the, the culture of being Jewish. And then there was the religious aspect of being Jewish. So don't, don't use Romans 2 as a proof text for replacement theology and say, well, now the Jews are not really the Jews, we're the Jews. No, what he's speaking about is the spiritual aspect of Jewishness. That when God called them and gave them the law and he gave them that ritual, it wasn't like just alter your body and we're cool. No, it was change your heart 
and let that outward sign of your body be a sign of that. And so Paul uses this clever imagery here, which happens to be exactly the way God originally intended it, to speak to the Colossians about this is who you are in Christ. Now he uses another ordinance of God to also help them understand who they are in Christ. Look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, baptism being one of two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church, the other being communion. He said, being buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now again, Paul is not prescribing a work that must be done. He's using baptism as the way in which God initially intended it as symbolism, symbolic of how we identify with Christ. And the very action of baptism illustrates this. This is why in our church, we, we, um, we always use immersion baptism. Why? Because it tells the story, doesn't it? As we take the sinner and we put them in the water, in my case, it was for quite a while, I had to have breathing apparatus when they held me down there, because that, that, that signifies being in the grave with Jesus when he died for our sins. He went into the earth because he died for our sins. And so that, that bringing them into the water symbolizes that. And then we raise them out of the water, don't we? And of course, everyone's clapping. People are taking pictures. People are taking iPhone videos. And it's because we want to remember that moment when we celebrated new life. The water didn't do it. Water is not a, 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 a necessary condition for, for salvation. It's... it's, it's something we do to celebrate it. Now, we do it, and I urge everyone to do it, because God commanded that we remember him that way. But it is not a, a precondition of salvation, and Paul is not using it in that way. He's using the imagery of it to say that, look, this is, this is who you are. You were baptized with him when, when you died to yourself, and, and that's signified by going in the water, and then you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so... This, this is what he's trying to convince them is, look, the circumcision thing, it's a change of your heart. The baptism ritual, that's, that's a celebration of having left your sins in the grave with Jesus and having risen again. But he tells us one more thing that was nailed to the cross. You see it there in verse 14 and 15. And this, this should give every Christian just a, a reason to be joyful. You notice most of the songs today, we're about the, joy, the, the power of Jesus' name, what it signifies, how we have been changed because we have given our lives to him. Look what he says here in verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know what he's talking about, of course. He's talking about the law. He's talking about the law because the law, through the law came the knowledge of sin, right? And so what the law is basically outlining for us, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but it's, it's outlining the standard of, of, of God, basically, the righteousness of God. And, and so it, it condemns us by virtue of what it reveals vis-a-vis -vis who we are apart from Christ. And what, what Paul is trying to help them understand is those requirements... That, that condemnation through, that comes through the knowledge of sin was nailed to the cross. Another way of saying that Jesus, he said, I don't come to abrogate the law. I come to fulfill it. 
You see, in Jesus, all of the requirements of the law are fulfilled. And what he promises is if we put our faith and trust in him, our sins are forgiven. They're nailed right there with, the, with, with Jesus on the cross. And then he goes on to say that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. Now, that's the hierarchy of the evil beings that oppose us, starting at the top with Satan. And then he literally has a hierarchy, a host of demons that have oppressed us the entirety of our lives. And what he says here is that he disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Now, that's an imagery that would, be, would resonate with the mind of a first century Roman. Because during the Roman conquests, when they, would, when they would defeat a foreign army and capture a foreign territory, they would have this big procession that would come into the city of Rome. And typically, as part of that procession, they would have the higher-ups, perhaps the king of that conquered nation and his generals and whatnot, and they'd be stripped down to almost naked, and they would be paraded through the streets behind the Roman army as a way of disgracing them, as a way of making a spectacle of them. And this is the imagery that Paul applies to the way in which Jesus has defeated your enemy and mine, the enemies that seek to destroy us. Now, do they still harass us in this current day? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the worst thing we can do is fear and then start to layer on stuff that someone has told us makes us more righteous uh, before God, when in fact all that makes us righteous before God is our faith and trust in Jesus. So in light of these momentous truths about who you and I are in Christ, Paul now goes... In summary fashion, he doesn't give extensive commentary on each of these three different areas, but he points them out, and surely his readers would know what he's talking about. And so the first one that he alludes to is legalism. Look at what it says there in verses 16 and 17. After having laid out who they are in Christ, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or in regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Now here, he's speaking about legalism. And in its most potent strain, if you will, legalism is the belief that salvation depends, either in part or in whole, on fulfilling a, a, a litany of rules and rituals and observances. This legalistic bent grew right out of the way in which the Jews took the law from God and became more fixated on the do's and the don'ts rather than the change of heart part. And that, that same bias is, is present within Christianity and it's, it, it has a lesser strain. A lesser strain of legalism is, okay, yeah, 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 Jesus Christ is all sufficient and belief in him saves you, but you really can't be acceptable before him. You really cannot even be considered um, a Christian with whom we would want to have fellowship if you don't approach God the way we do. If you don't dress the way we do, if, if you don't use the same music that we do, if you do certain things that we don't do, we're, we're not okay with your fellowship with God. Legalism is characterized by a, a little bit of a blindness towards the grace of God. 
You see, the grace of God, by the way, is not licensed to sin. It's not licensed to be sloppy in your lifestyle. But grace allows for there to be non-essential differences among Christians. Um, we aren't talking about big stuff like thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery. Those things, I mean, obviously those are, those are uh, things that we observe and, and there's no wiggle room on any of that. But there is a whole lot of uh, things that would be considered non-essential in terms of being a Christian that were put upon by these people and they were drawn over from the law of Moses. So you see some that he mentions there in summary fashion, food and drink. You know, there's a, a very robust dietary law that goes along with Judaism, isn't there? And so these sorts of things would be put upon the, uh, the immature believers in Asia Minor to say, well, look, you know, you're, you can't really be acceptable before God because you're eating meat that has blood in it. You're eating meat that wasn't killed in the proper fashion. And these are things that, if you'll recall in the book of Acts, uh, this is where the Lord starts to open up the idea that whatever the Lord has blessed should not be uh, refrained from. The Lord has given us everything to enjoy, right? And so we remember with it, when Peter went to the home of Cornelius and he brought the gospel there and he, he saw with his own eyes the Holy Spirit fall upon these Gentiles. And this is after he had a dream in which the Lord had sent down this sheet. And when the sheet opened up, it had all manner of these animals. And many of those animals were unclean according to the Mosaic law. And yet the voice of the Lord was saying, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter is saying, I would never do that, Lord. I, uh, <laughs> I, I would never eat anything unclean. And what the Lord specifically directs him is what the Lord declares clean or blessed is okay for you. And then right after that, of course, he brings the gospel to the Gentiles and the Gentiles receive it. He sees the Holy Spirit fall upon them. And now the church in Jerusalem, which is mostly Jewish, has a conundrum here. We saw them receive the Lord, so they must be believers like us. But they, they don't follow the law. What are we going to do? And of course, Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter has the answer. He says, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Oh, my gosh, Peter speaking truth. Back to the authority saying, look, let's be honest, men. We have never been able to keep this. Our fathers were never able to keep it. Why would we now, having received the grace of God and the spirit of God, want to place a yoke upon these Gentile believers that we never were able to bear? And, and so Jesus, Jesus would teach, of course, that it's not what goes in the mouth of a man that defiles him. It's what's in his heart and comes out. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, now, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a man. So, of course, again, the issue is what's going on in the heart. Jesus would say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so Paul is, Paul is trying to help these Colossians understand that all of that restriction, all of these constraints, they simply do not matter when it comes to being right before God. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any should boast. It's a gift of God. 
And this same kind of legalism creeps into the church today. There are different strains of the body of Christ who will not fellowship with people who would have a worship time like we had here this morning. They would not walk into a church with people dressed like y'all. No, no disrespect because I'm probably worse than most of you. Um, they would, they would uh, look down on anybody who eats certain things or drinks certain things. Now look, there's plenty of reasons that make sense and God would, would applaud for eating certain things and not eating certain things simply for the sake of enhancing the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body, right? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there are certain things that just degrade the temple, but it doesn't decouple you from the Lord. I mean, for example, it's wise not to be a smoker. It, it kills people. But if you are a smoker, and I don't know who is and who isn't, so I'm not looking at anybody. But if you're a smoker, does that mean you cannot approach the holy God? No. Charles Spurgeon loved a good cigar after a meal. Uh, not to say that he's any paragon of... of perfection or anything i'm just saying that it was it's not something now if you would stumble another christian by taking a liberty well then it's the law of love it's not the law of thou shall not have a cigarette thou, thou shall not have a glass of wine with your meal it's thou shall in loving in loving the other brother or sister who may be weaker in their faith don't cause them to stumble and that would say that is it okay to have a glass of wine with your with your rigatoni Good red sauce, good red wine, okay. But if you are with somebody who has come to faith as a recovering alcoholic, it would not be the loving thing to do to order that glass of wine when you're out to dinner or have that individual to your home. No, you wouldn't do it. But it's not because that's going to decouple you from the Lord. It's because you love that brother. And through love, you would never do that. This is something that Paul teaches in the Corinthian letters, right? Now, here's the thing that, that uh, needs to be explained because I puzzle over this too. When you think about being a kid, because that's when you're, you, know, you have no guile, you have no pretense, you're just a kid. You're experiencing everything for the first time. And so the one thing that kids uh, don't like to experience is rules. If a kid can get by with no rules, that's heaven, okay? So as we grow up into adults, why would we ever want to impose rules on ourselves that God didn't impose on us? Why would we want to restrain ourselves? Why would we, why would we be uh, enthusiastic about saying, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. And, and if you want to really be right with God, you shouldn't do those things either. Why is that? Well, it's a matter of pride. It's a matter of the flesh. The flesh is to blame because you see, we thrive on a to-do list because it makes us feel like we are involved and perhaps even in control of saving ourselves, of sanctifying ourselves. Look at me, I did it. Look at me, I've attained this level of holiness and let me just point out, you are far below where I am, right? <laughs> People love to say that stuff. It's like, look where I am, uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of thing. Oh, we would never do that kind of thing. And this is, this is what it does is the person who judges another believer because he or she is not living up to what they do, they're prone to do that because it elevates themselves. They're prone to point out 
what they do because it, it, it's like they're trying to establish their own bona fides in the faith. Please understand, I am not arguing against holy living, but understand motivation. We live holy lives because we're saved, not in order to be saved. We live holy lives because it's pleasing to the Lord. We live holy lives because in living out a holy life, people are going to believe the gospel they see before they be the one they hear, right? We, we all have had that experience. But never, ever let it reside in your heart that your ability to control your vessel in one way or another makes you more saved than someone else who's not as mature in the faith as you. Understand that when you think you stand, that's when Jesus says you are prone to fall. And so we understand that when we walk in the Lord and we're in the center of God's spirit, enjoy that, but give thanks to God for that because it's his hand that's guiding you, not your will. You know what the most important thing is for a Christian to do every day, every single day? Surrender. Surrender, surrender, surrender. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for it is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I mean, that's what we need to do every day because we, we're fleshly people. How else could we concoct and accept being legalistic when we have the grace of God shed on, onto us and in our hearts? Now, let me just, before we leave legalism, let me just make a defense of the law because you'd be saying, yeah, that darn law, that nasty law, you know, what a mistake that was to give us the law. Uh, no, it wasn't. The law, as we see here in verse 17 of the text, when he says, look, all these things that are in the law, he says, those are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. You see, there's four things, at least four things that the law was given for. And the first one was that it foreshadowed Christ. You could, we could do a study on this in Leviticus and Exodus, and I know you're dying to do it. But if you go through every single ritual, every single sacrifice, even the garments of the high priest, you will see Jesus everywhere you turn. Everything about the law spoke of Jesus. This is why when Jesus met the Emmaus Road disciples, Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus finally revealed, he's walking along with them and they don't know who he is. And he's saying, so what's new? He says, haven't you heard what's going on in Jerusalem? No, tell me. Well, he didn't say, no, tell me. He would have been lying. He said, tell me. So they, said, they, they tell him about the whole story with Jesus rising from the dead, or people think he has, and now everyone's flipping out. Where is he? Who stole the body? Or did he really rise from the dead? And then finally they recognize and they realize who he is. And what we read there in Luke 24, 27 is beginning at Moses all the way back here, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. What do you think he was showing them? He was showing them the law. Oh, you remember that Passover lamb thing? That was me. You know, right, right, remember the burnt offering? That's how you consecrate yourself to me. 
and just right down the way. And so the, the law, important for that. Secondly, it reveals the righteous will of God. The knowledge of sin that comes through the law is a realization that we in our flesh cannot meet the standard of Christ. Where does that lead us? Our fourth thing that the law does. Paul the Apostle would describe the law in Galatians 3 as our tutor. What might it be teaching us? It might be teaching us that, buddy, we better have a Savior or we're going to burn. We're going to burn, 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 burn. And so the law was vitally important. It's just that it wasn't important or efficacious for what people try to apply it to. Well, I'm going to do all these do's and I'm not going to do all those don'ts and therefore I will be more righteous than the next guy and because I'm better than the next guy, I must be saved. What a terrible deception that is. The next guy is nowhere near the standard. The standard is Christ. And if you're paying attention to the law, you lose with the law. You win with Christ. And so legalism was something that Paul was very, very desperate for his people the Colossians not to fall into. Now, the second thing he speaks to is in verses 18 and 19. And this is, this is a philosophy, really, that comes into the church, but it's all over the place in our modern world, and that's mysticism. Listen to what he says there in verse 18 and 19. Now, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which... He has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Now, this is known as mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism, in its general sense, it's a belief that visions and experiences with the spirit realm, or with the spirit can get you closer to God and provide you a deeper revelation of God independent of his word and his spirit. Now, we see in the greater church today, and this is something that really draws in a lot of young people, is these church services, you see them all over YouTube, gajillions of people in a stadium, and uh, uh, I mean, let's face it, the Hillsong Church kind of has this, this aspect. The Bethel Church in California has this aspect. What, 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 is, what is the point of the service that when you watch these services on YouTube? And if you haven't, I'm not recommending you do, um, but you can see it plainly. It is an event. It is a happening. It is people just getting up. They're crying. They're getting all emotional. Uh, the music, and a lot of the music is is speaking words of truth we play some of that music from hillsong um and and we vetted the words very carefully as we do with every worship song that we do here and if i believe there's any issue uh with with the way in which people might take the song i'll explain it before we play it i think i did that with i speak jesus but here's the thing what these these so-called modern churches are trying to evoke is an experience an experience that moves, that is emotional. And you notice with those particular kinds of services, the word of God is barely given place. Jesus may, may be mentioned, and I say maybe because sometimes he's not. 
And what it's really all about is drawing you into a place where you can feel something. And it takes many different forms, but it's very enticing to people. You've probably encountered people that you've tried to witness to, and they say, well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, but I'm, I'm spiritual. And a lot of times what that person means is I'm very open to some kind of mystical experience that's going to excite my senses, that's going to give me a moment. And it's interesting, too, because there is a lot of mysticism. If you looked at the huge tent of all people that name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, a lot of mystic influence is frankly squarely in the Catholic Church. You've heard of some of the apparitions that are claimed. Uh, uh, usually like the Lady of Lourdes or, or the Lady of Fatima. And these would be visions of the Mother Mary. And people will build a whole theology around the experience of seeing something or feeling something. See, this is one of the big issues with mysticism is people will give their feelings the weight of truth, the weight of scripture, the weight, a higher weight than what is revealed to us in scripture. Um, there's a lot of problems with this. First of all, it tends to lead one to idol worship. Worshiping angels. I, I know I saw an angel. And what people are trying to do now is to recreate that experience of seeing that angel. They saw the Mother Mary. They went to this one place in the middle of France or in the countryside of Spain. And, and it was claimed that there was a, an apparition of, of Mary in that place. And so now all of a sudden that has become a major, the hotel business is now booming in that area because people are coming for the hope that they will see that one apparition. The problem with that is, first of all, it's idol worship. Scripture clearly tells us, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. We don't need an intermediary that is other than Jesus, right? We don't need anyone between us and them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. You can see all the spirits you want. They will not get you close to Jesus unless you have the one spirit, the spirit of God, living in your heart. See, this is the thing. People are dying for an experience with the spirit world. I'm here to tell you that that is possible. You will have, a, if, you are, if you desperately seek it, you can have an encounter with the spirit world. But it will not be the spirit of Christ. It will be other spirits, deceiving spirits. And these deceiving spirits are running roughshod over the youth of our country. And don't think that it's only people outside of the church. There are plenty of young people in the church who have been romanced by this very thing. This idea that mysticism can be elevated uh, to a place of religious authority is most troubling because people will believe that the experience that they had with a spirit, which they might mistake for the spirit, in their mind, because it happened to them, it will trump the word of God. It will be something that will have more authority for them than the word of God. This is why Paul was so painstakingly careful to lay out, wait a minute, let's think about who you are in Christ. Let's think about what he did. He's the head. Everything about God is subsumed in him. He is the head of a body of which you are part. He is all sufficient and you already have him. He is the only mediator between God and man. 
He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father unless they go through that door. Jesus said, I am the door. And so anything that anyone could tell you about an experience that can bring you closer to God or bring you in the presence of God or save your life is a lie. And young people need to know that. Now, finally, there is one, uh, there's another one known as asceticism. And let's pick it up in verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." Now, asceticism is the kissing cousin of, of legalism, and it is an enabler, an enabler of mysticism. Here's what I mean. Asceticism is self-denial. It is, it is making yourself comply with self-imposed restrictions not necessarily tied to your understanding of theology, but as a means by which you might become more spiritual. Now you'd say, wait a minute, Pastor David, what about fasting? Isn't fasting a form of self-denial? Isn't fasting mentioned in the Bible as a practice that should be used? And it is. It's a, again, the key word is motivation. See, if you, are, if you are praying through something, you're praying through a trial, you're praying for a child, you're praying for something, there is nothing wrong with moving yourself off to the side, fasting, depriving yourself of food so that you can direct all your faculties towards the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a commendable thing. But notice when Jesus talked about fasting, what he said. He said, when you fast, don't put on sackcloth. Don't like use a little bit of makeup to make your cheeks look a little more sunken in. And go in front of people, woe is me, and oh my gosh, and let's see, I've been on this fast now for three hours, and this has been really tough. <laughs> no, he said, go in your prayer closet. You don't need for anyone to know. Just do that for the purpose of focusing on the Lord. Asceticism is something completely different. It's different in legal, than legalism because really it's all about you. It's not you, uh, you know... Uh, trying to impose anything. It's more about depriving yourself in the false promise that that makes you in and of itself more worthy before God. And this is why he says, look, why, why are you imposing these things? Why as though living in the world, because this was something the ascetics did. This was part of a, a Greek philosophy that if you deprive yourself, you are somehow more spiritual. It's something that also is borrowed from Eastern mysticism and religion. Why do you subject yourself, subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch that. Do not taste this. Do not handle that. Which are all things which perish with the using. You say, these are not things that are going to hurt you. In fact, God gives us all good things to enjoy. And this idea of asceticism has crept into the world through a secular door. 
Many of us have, have gotten rather nauseated in the last two years with the whole woke ideology. Not only is it now all over government, it's all, now it's all in the marketplace. Companies get canceled if they're not woke enough. Now it's coming through the front door of the church, not this church, but some churches. What's that all about? Well, a lot of it has to do with this very same concept, asceticism. What do I mean by that? Well, all of a sudden now we're being told, in the name of the planet, have colder houses, uh, don't eat meat, bugs are really good for you. Don't drive a car that you know, can actually get you someplace and without having to rewire your house. I mean, all of these different things that are, that are being put upon you that you must do if you are to be a, a moral upstanding person. I actually heard in the last week a video of, of clergy people saying that if you are not preaching from the pulpit, green New Deal ideology, you are not a true Christian. This, this, is not even, this is not even whispered anymore. It's not even told in polite company. Look, when people want to position human beings as separate from nature, I, I disagree. We are part of nature. We are the capstone of God's creation. What did Jesus, what did God tell us in the garden? To, multi, to subdue the earth and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. This is not to do such a thing irresponsibly. Yes, of course, we should be conscious about the environment. We should. And any way that we can uh, go easier on the environment, we should. But to start to make a list of things you can do and can't do, if you are to be considered a moral person or even a Christian, is just patently false. And it's the same influence that was coming into the church. Look, if you want to... This was what the monks and a lot of these, these ascetics were about in the Middle Ages, where they would go up on a hilltop, they would stay in a monastery, they would wear, literally wear hair shirts. You know how you get, you know, I don't like to go get a haircut and then wear that same shirt all day long because you got little hairs in there and going like this. Well, they would, they would take goat hair, knit a shirt out of it and wear that so that they could be miserable all day, all day long. And that was somehow going to make them closer to God. Hey, there's a lot of other ways you could be miserable. Why, you could just watch HGTV all day and you could be miserable. <laughs> Sorry, honey, I just had to get that in there. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so this is, this is something that's highly influential. You know, it's a way in which people who don't care much for God or his word can still feel holy and spiritual, is deny themselves certain things. And this is something that Paul was very concerned about. Hey, look, if you want to impose things on your life, if you want to uh, be uh, uh, intermittent faster, I do that. Does that make me evil? No. The fact that I just told you that makes me evil because now I'm bragging on it. No, I'm not. <laughs> but, but, you know, you can do a lot of different things. You can, you can control your life any way you want. But please don't draw a line between that and being more worthy before God because it, it's, it's a lie. It's a lie, okay? So this is what Paul is laying out. I would urge you, let's be concerned for the kids that are here, kids on the other side of that wall, from the littlest ones to the biggest ones. They are being exposed to this stuff all the time and it's it's growing in crescendo and it could draw them away from 
their faith, just as Paul was concerned for the Colossians. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your word, for its truth, for all that you mean to us, Lord, because you are all sufficient. You have done it all. You have saved us through your atoning death on the cross. And through that atoning death, Lord, we have everlasting life. There is nothing more we need or could ever add to that. And so I pray, Father, we would never be drawn off by the deceptions and the heresies that have been coming into the church since the earliest days. I pray, Father, we would have our eyes fixed solely and wholly on you and nowhere else, Lord. We love you. We give you thanks. We give you praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your day.